Hello and welcome to this episode. This is the last in a short series about updates about the coronavirus. These all came from a very, very long document that I was tapping into over the last few weeks. I think it's going to be the last episodes explicitly on the coronavirus for a little while, but if anything changes, of course, I reserve the right to change my mind on that. So this episode is going to be about the coronavirus vaccine. In earlier episodes, I've expressed concern about the politicisation of science and the political pressure on scientists. And this is one of the things that really worries me about a vaccine, because the pressure on scientists to try and deploy a vaccine before it is ready, before there's good proof that it's safe and effective, is going to be massive. We have already seen and discussed massive political pressure on people to deploy antiviral treatments when we still don't know whether or not they are effective, and I see no reason why this won't hold true in a vaccine. Now, vaccine trials are already underway. The first step is usually to see if the vaccine can elicit an immune response. I actually have a couple of friends from Oxford who are going in for the specific trial of the vaccine they have there, which is developed in a rather fascinating way. What they do is take a virus that usually causes the common cold and artificially reshape its proteins on the outside of the virus to resemble that of the new coronavirus. So the person's immune system learns to recognise the protein surrounding that virus and make some antibodies that can fight against it without ever actually being exposed. I would have liked to go for the trial myself, but you need to be living nearby, which I'm not at the moment. At some point, there'll be bigger phase trials, and hopefully I can go in for one of those. In all seriousness, though, uh, you'll get better medical observation plus a chance of immunity to the virus, and the early stage trials for this kind of vaccine are very low risk. I've known people do them for MERS, which is a much more deadly coronavirus, typhus, malaria, and so on, with no ill effects that I've seen so far. If all goes well, some of these early vaccine trials will have some kind of success metric, i.e. there will be a study out that will say, ah, the vaccine elicits an immune response, this will be heralded as a big success, but the vaccine will not be ready yet. There's an awful lot more work that needs to be done to test it and ensure that it's safe for the vast majority of people to be given. Perhaps there's an argument that a riskier, earlier stage vaccine could be given to high-risk people, such as healthcare professionals, who are very likely to contract the virus anyway. This is the case, for example, with the vaccine for Ebola, Ebola is an incredibly deadly virus when you catch it, and therefore if you know you're likely to be exposed, even a vaccine that kills you only 1% of the time is actually going to be far more useful to you than getting Ebola without a vaccine. But if the vaccine is untested, it might not be safe to deploy in the population, and the evidence surrounding how well it works to protect against the virus I think is going to be mixed for quite a while in these early trial phases. So you need these late-stage safety trials with large groups of people, that require several months to conduct follow-up to ensure the vaccine is really safe. So you can see where I'm going. There will be immense pressure on scientists to allow this vaccine to get deployed before it's ready. This is especially the case if a vaccine is deployed in one country and not in others, and people are increasingly going to ask why can't we use the same vaccine that they're using in that country. And if a slightly dangerous vaccine is used to immunise a very small group of people, then there's also going to be a risk that people say why can't we roll this out to everyone, even though the cost-benefit analysis might not be good enough for everyone to get that vaccine, if you see what I mean. And it's going to be very difficult, with so much at stake, for people to resist the temptation to deploy something that's not safe or not effective. Just as we are seeing already, huge amounts of pressure on people to deploy antiviral drugs that we don't know whether they work to treat patients. And there is always, always the risk that into the gap, some less scrupulous people might rush, because this is what they often do when the real scientists are expressing doubts and uncertainty, as is their job. With that in mind, there are some developments on the vaccine front to discuss. Remember that although no vaccines for coronaviruses currently exist, they have been worked on before. The SARS and MERS vaccines were once both in quite advanced stages of development, 
although the SARS vaccine lost out on a lot of funding once the initial threat from that disease receded. By the way, given that novel coronaviruses have crossed over from animals to humans twice from 2003, 2011, and we escaped a massive pandemic both times simply by chance of how they both behaved, it would have been very wise to continue funding into that research, especially when it was known that novel coronaviruses would probably cross from animals into humans again. It's unclear to me exactly how much developing a vaccine for SARS would have helped us fight SARS-CoV-2, but it seems likely that the answer is quite a bit. So what's going on with the vaccine at the moment? There's currently a huge plethora of different approaches to developing a vaccine. As many as 78 vaccine candidates, according to the Nature Report, the COVID-19 vaccine development landscape, where I'm drawing a lot of this information from. Now, a vaccine candidate is really the first step in development. It's any kind of molecule that you suspect may react with the body's immune system to produce a response that will create antibodies which can fight off the given virus. Now, it's worth being clear about what this means. According to a review of vaccine development, called Risk in Vaccine Research and Development Quantified, the prospects for a vaccine to go from preclinical stages, where these are now, to widespread use and deployment are actually very small indeed. By analysing many vaccines, the paper found that just 6% of them actually make it to the market in the end, and it takes an average of 10 years for them to do so. In other words, of the 78 candidates that have been analysed in this Nature paper, we might expect one to be successful on average at some point. Incidentally, of course, this partly explains the general reticence for companies to develop vaccines in the first place. You're essentially spending a lot of time, resources and money on a project which could take 10 years to realise any kind of profit and only has a 6% chance of success, by which time your competitors may well have beaten you to the punch and all that effort will be wasted. And even if you succeed, you will only be able to sell a couple of doses per person who needs to be vaccinated. Sure, if the vaccine becomes an infant vaccine that is routinely administered to millions, I guess there's a market for it. But you can see why there wasn't much of a market for the SARS vaccine once the outbreak had finished, and it was considered by many companies that were working on developing it that spending uh, millions of dollars and many years working on a vaccine that may never sell a single dose and only has a 6% chance of succeeding was seen as a bad idea, even though for the future of humanity broadly, it would have been a great thing. Compare it to the general drug discovery market. Drugs are given to patients who are already sick, so the safety requirements can actually be lower than when they're administered to a healthy population. After all, if you're giving someone a drug for a disease, and the disease kills 10% of people, and the drug kills 1% of people, that's an amazing drug. If you're giving a vaccine to millions upon millions of people, then even a tiny proportion of people who get sick from the vaccine will cause a really big problem, unless the disease itself is likely to infect everyone. Some people may require continual doses of a drug for the rest of their lives, depending on the condition, and you can move to deploying a drug more quickly. So from a financial point of view, it's arguable that vaccine development is often pretty unprofitable. In the case of this coronavirus, though, it seems like whoever does develop it first is going to be able to sell it as fast as they can manufacture it. So of those 78 candidates we talked about, five so far have gone into stage one trials. This means they're introduced to a small group of humans. The main thing they're testing for here, does the vaccine actually provoke a decent immune response? How long does that immune response last for? Does it look strong enough to actually protect against the virus? Are there people for whom this does and doesn't work? And does the vaccine have any side effects or cause any ill effects? 
Sometimes they ramp up the dose of the vaccine over time, which makes sense, right? I mean, here you essentially want to find the minimum dose that might provoke an immune response, and obviously the smaller the dose, the less bad you would expect any toxicity effects from the vaccine to be. Typically, in a phase one trial, they want to do very intensive monitoring of the small group to determine if there are any ill effects from the vaccine. It's generally recommended to do this within a hospital. If the vaccine involves introducing some type of dead or inert virus, they might be looking to see if people can fall ill with that virus and even transmit it to others. Generally, there are then up to two further phases of trials. If a vaccine passes stage one, stage two tests it on hundreds of patients and gets data about any side effects from a much larger set of the population. It's here that a great deal of the safety information is being gathered. They might be looking to see if age, gender, dose of vaccine, age of first vaccination, the number of doses that may be required and so on, have any impact on immune response. Stage 3 trials are on an even larger scale, with potentially thousands enrolled. The vaccine has to be shown to be effective at guarding against natural disease conditions before it can be approved for general use. So safety and effectiveness are always what we're looking for here. And it can take quite a lot of time to demonstrate either of those things. For example, clearly, if a vaccine only protects you against a certain virus for the next two months, you need two months to figure out that that's happening. The safety testing is extremely important. The reason I'm always so confident in telling anti-vaxxers that vaccines are safe is because they go through unbelievably stringent testing. But this was not always the case. The trouble is that you're trying to elicit an immune system response. And there will always be risks there from autoimmune conditions where the body's immune system attacks itself. Here I quote from Derek Lowe, who's been doing lots of blogs on this on science, uh, the pipeline uh, drug delivery expert who has helped source some of the content for this episode. He says, quote, Guillain-Barre syndrome is an example. Your body reacts to an antigen that could be a viral infection or a vaccination by deciding that the myelin sheaths around your nerves are also the enemy and starts destroying them. Very bad news, and although most people recover, a few die. Roughly estimated, even a seasonal flu vaccine might kill about one out of every 10 million recipients through such a reaction. We give it to everyone possible, though, because far more people will die if we don't. But the 1976 swine flu debacle shows what can happen, both in perception and reality, when you get this balance wrong. So I'll just interject to explain here. In 1976, in response to a re-emergence of a strain of influenza, H1N1, which caused the Spanish flu pandemic, a vaccine was rushed out over the course of nine months in the United States. It was administered to 25% of the US population before the program was discontinued. Over the course of this, 8.8 per million people who received the virus got Guillain-Barre syndrome. So you can see that if the alternative is likely getting a disease with a 1% fatality rate, the vaccination is well worth it, even though 9 per million people are going to have quite severe side effects. It's worth pointing out as well that the 2009 swine flu vaccine uh, for a similar H1N1 strain did not cause any noticeable increase in Guillain-Barre syndrome. But the issue, of course, is with the public perception. Thankfully, there was not a swine flu pandemic in 1976. Had there been, many people would not have been vaccinated. But you can again see how this could be truly nightmarish. A vaccine is developed, the already far too large anti-vax movement seize on the idea that it's unsafe, and suddenly there's massive politicisation around an issue of science again. Maybe some people don't get the vaccine who should. Maybe it's not possible to establish herd immunity through vaccination. I don't want to have to say I told you so in a couple of years when this happens, but it's a really scary prospect at this point. Back to Derek Lowe again, then. He says, you can't avoid the problem. The huge person-to-person variation in everyone's immune system means that these severe events can never be ruled out at some low level if you're dosing enough people. 
Now you see the exact bind that vaccine development has always been in, because the whole point is to treat millions, even billions of people who are not currently sick, to protect them against disease, while not doing more harm along the way by setting off the body's fiercest and most alarming biological responses. I have no doubt that the companies and regulatory agencies involved will be doing everything they can to address safety issues. But if you're looking at a vaccine getting authorised for emergency use early next year, 2021, well, you may have to cut corners on safety. End quote. So all of this takes a great deal of time. Time to collect the data, time to inject the people with the vaccine, time to analyse the data, tweak the vaccine candidate, and time for the individual immune systems to respond to the vaccine, start producing antibodies, and time for long-term monitoring of patients to ensure that there are no side effects in subsequent weeks and months, and how long immunity lasts. It's also worth pointing out that while 18 months might seem like a lifetime for vaccine development, especially while we're considering lockdowns that last that long or alternating lockdowns and epidemics that last that long, it's still a vast improvement over where we were some years ago. Vaccine development can often take 10 to 15 years. When the SARS outbreak happened in 2002-03, it took 20 months for the first vaccine that was even ready for the first phase of human trials to be developed. So we've already skipped that 20 months from the SARS development vaccine trial. So even this 18-month time frame is really very optimistic and would be world record speed for a vaccine. I don't think we can rely on this occurring any quicker than that. So don't think that this 12 to 18 months is some pessimistic hedging your bets time frame. It really is a very quick one. Even the Ebola vaccine, which was developed recently and at lightning speed to respond to a very scary pathogen, took 10 years before it was ready for emergency deployment in people likely to be exposed to Ebola. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, because Ebola is deadlier than SARS-CoV-2, you can arguably have a useful Ebola vaccine that's quite a bit less safe than a useful coronavirus vaccine. So I'll briefly discuss some of the reasons why we've actually been able to do things this quickly, and the five candidates that have made it to stage one trials already. But it should be clear from this that starting trials in humans is the first step in a very, very long road to a workable vaccine. So there are two from Shenzhen, one from pharma company Moderna, one from Camsimo Biologicals, and one from Innovio Pharmaceuticals. We also have Johnson & Johnson saying they'll have a vaccine ready next year, and a couple of other big pharma companies that are saying that within 12 to 18 months they will have a vaccine going. So there's clearly lots and lots of interest here. One of the fascinating things here is that there's a real range of underlying technologies behind the viruses and the vaccines that are being tested these days. Vaccines are really no longer just dead or inactivated pieces of viruses. There are lots more sophisticated ways of doing it. For example, although most of these vaccines seem to target the spike protein on the outside of the coronavirus, which allows it to enter human cells, they introduce this spike protein into our systems in different ways. Some of them use modified kinds of other viruses, which now contain the spike protein as well. Some of them deliver fragments of RNA into the virus into our system through liquid nanoparticles. Some are artificially created cells which are made to resemble the original virus. Now this is not really my area at all, so I can't comment too much on how these work in detail, but it's interesting that we're actually trying out lots of new approaches here. Now luckily for me, as I was writing this, Derek Lowe wrote another excellent science blog outlining the different types of vaccine that are being tested. I'm aware that this level of detail may not be of interest to everyone, so what I'm going to do is quote a huge chunk of that article right at the end of this podcast as a bonus, Uh, so stay tuned for that. Now, these methods have not necessarily formed the basis for successful vaccines in the past, but they all have advantages in terms of the speed at which vaccines can be tested and developed. Indeed, one of the major announcements is that Bill Gates is working on factories that can mass-produce some of the most promising vaccine candidates in the future. And there's going to have to be redundancy here, so there might be six or seven factories... Uh, which will all be producing vaccines, most of which will never be used. 
it, it's the only way to get it out faster. And ultimately, even though this may seem wasteful, you're probably wasting less money than you are if you can accelerate the restarting of the planet uh, more quickly. So if this massive effort to create vaccines for the coronavirus succeeds, then we might just wind up being even better prepared for the next pandemic or for the infectious diseases out there which don't have a vaccine as a side effect. And that would be an excellent benefit for humanity. On the other hand, the Nature paper notes that because a lot of these initial vaccine candidates are using technology that has never been developed before, it's arguable that there might be a higher rate of failure for these initial vaccine candidates. Developing 78 vaccine candidates at once may sound like a lot, but if anything, perhaps we need to be developing hundreds to be sure of at least one of them working. In this sense, it is comforting that a wide range of technology is being tested here. At least you think this will increase our chances. Needless to say, if it actually takes longer than 18 months, perhaps 5 or 10 years, for a vaccine for the novel coronavirus to be ready, then a lot of what we might do with alternating lockdowns is thrown out the window. Chances are, if that was the case, then we'd see herd immunity established in lots of countries simply through repeated outbreaks, which means that we can't avoid the death tolls that the whole point of this has been to try and avoid. Unless social distancing, public hygiene measures, and above all, a very effective system for testing and contact tracing can take place. So it's really going to be very important to keep a very close eye on progress for vaccine development. What else can we say of the coronavirus vaccine development? There are concerns that the coronavirus could mutate, which would make a vaccine ineffective, for the same reason that we need to make a new flu vaccine every year. So far, it seems as if the new coronavirus mutates more slowly than seasonal flu, according to some analysis from NextStrain, which might give us some hope that a coronavirus vaccine would be effective for longer. Again, I'm speculating on things I'm not confident about, but it seems to me that there's likely some element of randomness and uncertainty to this. We have to consider how mutations work. Random mutations occur all the time, simply through copying errors. In fact, it's the low fidelity of copying using RNA versus DNA, RNA makes a lot more mistakes, that allows viruses to mutate more quickly than other organisms, alongside, of course, the fact that their genomes tend to be shorter. Presumably, the more hosts a virus has, and hence the more viruses that exist, the more likely we are to see lots of mutations. But just because a virus mutates in one host, it hardly means that every copy of that virus suddenly has this mutation. There needs to be quite significant selection pressure, a reason for the mutation to be more successful than the previous strain, so that the new strain will replicate slightly more than the previous one, and hence eventually circulate in its own right. Otherwise it will just disappear, or at least not become dominant. Now, this is why we need a new seasonal flu vaccine every year. When we vaccinate against seasonal flu, we're introducing a big selection pressure that means any seasonal flu virus lucky enough to resist the vaccine now has a big advantage and will spread more quickly. It's evolution in real time. Similarly, as viruses spread throughout the population, the immunity that we build up to those viruses is a selection pressure that encourages any mutations to arise. And finally, one of the reasons that viruses often seem to evolve to get less deadly, rather than more deadly, is that we take more preventative measures against the deadlier strains, which can often result in fewer people being sickened anyway. We've already discussed this phenomenon. Someone who goes straight to hospital with a very deadly virus will transmit it to fewer others than someone who feels fine and continues about their ordinary business. This is the same reason that SARS and MERS have not caused pandemics, while SARS-CoV-2 has done. But it introduces a selection pressure against the deadliest viruses. And it's not just me saying this, there are epidemiologists and experts who are saying things like, the simple fact is, we shouldn't expect the coronavirus to mutate substantially, because at the moment there is no selection pressure on it. It's perfectly happy to go through the population, uh, infecting lots and lots of people. There's no reason for 
a new mutation strain to become dominant for any reason. And while that's the case, it's quite unlikely to happen, which at least is good news if that's the sort of thing that you're worried about. And of course, it's important to say not every mutation suddenly means that a vaccine is ineffective. You need quite a substantial change in the virus for that to happen. And of course, most mutations don't do all that much for any difference in how the virus affects people. So while this is a concern, especially in the long term, where we might expect uh, seasonal coronaviruses to uh, come back or change or be with us for a longer time, it does seem quite likely to me that if it does mutate, it will be to a less dangerous form because the selection pressures against that will be far uh, reduced. We're obviously not going to do this kind of massive contact tracing and testing for a virus that basically just gives you a cold. Uh, so it seems to me that all of the pressures are going to force this thing to be less deadly. Doesn't mean that we couldn't get unlucky and have a new strain that is more deadly, but it doesn't seem too likely to me at the moment. Finally, one thing to consider is the logistics to how to manufacture this vaccine. And these are going to be really challenging and will probably cause some significant delays to that one year optimistic time frame. Some vaccines need to be refrigerated, which always adds a layer of complexity. Now, the influenza vaccines for seasonal flu are actually produced in chicken's eggs. You can kind of put it in the chicken's egg and the virus will reproduce massively. Uh, the vaccine will reproduce massively and you can generate more vaccine that way. Um, but the same is not true of SARS-CoV-2 uh, as a virus or the vaccine that we would develop from it. So I'm going to quote again from Derek Lowe on this. Um, he says, quote, What if an eventual vaccine needs more than one round of administration? Keeping track of that and following it up is yet another issue. My guess is that scale-up and manufacturing could well be the biggest chance for the timelines mentioned earlier to blow up, so there's going to be a massive effort to front-load the work on these problems. This is why, for example, Bill Gates has already indicated willingness to fund factories for up to seven vaccines up front. The live virus, attenuated virus, recombinant protein and nucleic acid vaccines will all involve completely different production methods and formulations. And since we don't know which way we'll be going, this would seem to be the only way to address the issue. So you need different factories for every type of vaccine you might make. Pfizer and others have already said that they're going to be working on production even before the efficacy data come in, which needless to say is not usual business practice. I think we'll get vaccine efficacy one way or another, although surely it won't be characterised as thoroughly as it normally would be. End quote. There is one thing that I should mention which is starting to be discussed for vaccine trials, which is the idea that we can speed things up by so-called challenge trials, determining efficacy by vaccinating someone and then exposing them intentionally to the virus to see if the vaccine works. There's obviously not standard procedure for vaccines, especially for viruses like this one where no treatment exists. Even if the people concerned were young and healthy, if you did the trial on a thousand of them, you might expect a couple to die unless the vaccine was effective. You would have to be brave to sign up to such a thing, and the ethics of it are disputed. On the other hand, if you view your chance of getting the virus as quite high anyway, you can make an argument that doing so under medical supervision is preferable. And of course, a good utilitarian would happily chuck away a few hundred lives if it could save thousands. Such is life in wartime. So here with the vaccine, of course, we see yet another opportunity for misinformation. At some point, probably in the next few weeks or months, some group will announce positive results from phase one, and scientifically illiterate parts of the mainstream media will run with this as vaccine successfully developed, and God knows what the politicians will then make of that. I've already seen a viral story going round and round saying, vaccine found to be effective. And there's a Twitter account called at just says in mice, which essentially takes every popular science headline that's published 
uh, of a medical study which claims some drug shows some effect. And if it turns out the original study just occurs in mice, they put the words in mice on the end of the headline. And yeah, as you can imagine, this one that said the vaccine works in mice. There will be pressure to deploy this finished vaccine, even when, as I hope I've convinced you, 12 to 18 months is really a world record, extremely optimistic timeline. And then, if the vaccine is ineffective, or worse, causes side effects, scientists will of course be blamed when they were hurried through it in the first place. What this whole crisis has really done is further convince me of my already pretty firm conviction that we need, for society to survive the 21st century, greater scientific literacy in the public, in the media, and amongst politicians. The UK cabinet, for example, who make key decisions, is 25 people. Of those, 20 have degrees, just three have degrees in any kind of science, and there are no medics or no biologists, and the scientists are not concentrated in sciencey departments. In the US, that's three out of 17, although again, there's not much correlation with the one doctor in charge of housing and urban development rather than medicine. I don't want to come across as that worst of things, a STEM supremacist who thinks that science, technology, engineering, medicine, mathematics are the only important things. But just 10% of MPs in the UK Parliament have any kind of STEM degree, even though 80% of them went to university. Nearly half of all degrees awarded in the UK are STEM degrees. So it's clear that there is a a big underrepresentation of people who have done uh, science as undergraduates in the decision-making apparatus of government. Now, there's no reason that you need a degree in science to understand scientific issues. The UK has a very good science advisory system. Just having some expertise in science, let alone from 10 to 20 years ago, is not necessarily going to mean you're any good at actually running things. If you put me in government, I would probably make a whole new kind of mistake. So I'm not advocating for a technocracy here where people rule based on their expertise. Even so, I feel like if I was assembling a cabinet and I ended up with 22 scientists and three non-scientists, I might wonder a little bit if I was getting a diverse range of views here. And beyond this, general scientific literacy in the media and the public is also crucial. It means that accurate, timely and important information is communicated to people about these issues. It means that people can more easily identify obvious fallacies and conspiracy theories which are spreading like wildfire and are inoculated against misinformation. It means that people are more likely to understand and comply with any scientific advice. And it means we don't have to deal with so many misleading claims being reported with little scepticism in the media. So I'm personally more determined than ever to keep doing my bit to try and provide some level of scientific discussion and content to anyone who wants to listen and to talk about my uncertainties and the sources for my information so that I can be really transparent and people can know whether they think what I'm saying is nonsense or not. Thanks very much for listening to this latest coronavirus therapy session. I'm sure you're all bombarded with this information all the time, and little of what I'm saying here comes from a place of expertise. It's really a helpful exercise for me to organise these thoughts, and so I may as well share them with all of you, providing you remember to seek out your own trusted sources of information and keep abreast of things in your own way. And I sincerely hope that everyone within the sound of my voice is continuing to do well and making it through this crisis together. Scientific uncertainties may abound, but there is one thing I am certain of, which is that we all have our part to play and can do things to help those around us make it through. I am reminded endlessly of the wonderful quote by the science fiction author Philip K. Dick. He said, quote, The true measure of a person is not their wealth, their social status, or how high they rise in this freak establishment. No, the true measure of a person is how quickly they respond when others call for their aid, and how much of themselves they give. 
Thank you, and take care. And now for the masochists, I'm going to talk about different types of vaccine. So this is entirely quoted from Derek Lowe's article on Science Magazine for his blog, In the Pipeline. Uh, he's someone with decades of experience in drug discovery, so I'm going to defer to his expertise here. And uh, I'm going to start quoting it here. So, quote, types of vaccines. For starters, one type of vaccine is live attenuated virus. And that's just what it sounds like. Although, as always, there's room to argue about whether the word alive should ever be used when talking about viruses at all. At any rate, this would be a real infectious virus that doesn't give you much of a disease, but does give you immunity to the wild-type virus. It's a milder strain. The smallpox, chickenpox, rotavirus and MMR vaccines are all of this type. And they can be very effective. In fact, the most effective vaccines are mostly of this type. The protection comes on more quickly and completely, with less need for booster shots and with longer-lasting effects. The tricky part is developing one of those attenuated viruses in the range where it produces effective immunity on infection, but is definitely not effective at putting people in hospital. There is a process of getting milder with time that happens with many viruses in general as they coexist with their hosts, and the idea is to speed that up in the lab by passaging the virus through human cells again and again and again and letting it mutate. Ideally, you want a strain that has ended up with a very long path to mutating back to being a deadly virus, of course. The next class are the inactivated virus types. In that case, if you th even if you think that viruses are alive, I don't, these are dead, having run down the curtain and joined the bleeding choir invisible. This was originally done by exposing pathogen preparations to high temperatures, but now is often done through nasty denaturing disinfectants like formalin or beta-propolyactone, sorry guys, things that alter the proteins enough to keep the virus from working, but perhaps not so much that they don't set off the right immune response. That's a bit of an art form, of course, and generally this has to be tried a number of times in order to get a reproducible immune response and a reproducible way to manufacture the inactive virus. As you would imagine, administering a pile of disabled protein pieces in this manner is often not as effective as the live virus approach above, which makes human cells crank out viral proteins on their own. So if you want this type of vaccine to work, you need a big injection plus booster shots for most of these types of virus. The hepatitis A vaccine and the seasonal flu vaccine are of this type. Yet another common sort of vaccine uses just a particular protein, protein fragment or subunit piece of a pathogen. So for some bacterial diseases, you can also try to raise antibodies to some protein toxin that the bacteria produce rather than to the bacteria themselves, so that your immune system can destroy the toxin, if not the bacteria. The key is to pick one that provokes a strong immune response, and since there are lots of possibilities, working through them can be a process all of its own. The good part is that you can then produce the protein recombinantly and in quantity once you've narrowed down. There are other possibilities, of course. This could be a glycoprotein or even just a piece of polysaccharide from an organism's outer coating, since those can be quite distinctive and allow your immune system to identify this pathogen and destroy it. The tricky part here is getting enough response. The immune system can be very sensitive to attack by a pathogen, a bacteria or a virus, but these individual pieces of a virus can be less effective in triggering antibody production and generally need adjuvants to work as well. See below. Vaccines of this class include the ones for shingles, hepatitis B, HPV, meningococcus and more. A more recent approach is a DNA vaccine. This uses a circular DNA plasmid coding for some antigen protein which has been engineered with strong promoter signals and stop signals at both ends of the sequence. The plan is that this will be taken up by cells, where the DNA 
may well then be transcribed into RNA and then translated into that protein, which sets off the immune response. As a nice feature, as with the attenuated vaccine technique, you're taking advantage of all the cellular machinery to make your antigen proteins for you, so they come out folded correctly and with the necessary post-translational modifications already done for you. If you really want to stack the deck for protein production, you can take a known virus, which doesn't have to be related to the pathogen you're vaccinating against, and re-engineer its nucleic acid payload to deliver just the piece you want. In that case, you're back into the live attenuated virus technique, but sort of cobbling one together from different parts. This may sound pretty similar to gene therapy, which also generally uses viral vectors, and so your intuition is right on target. The two fields have had a lot to teach each other. There is no human vaccine yet that uses any DNA technique, although there is a Zika DNA vaccine for horses. Some candidates have been tried, but they haven't elicited enough of a response. Another tricky part is the stability of the DNA plasmid, both on storage and on injection, but these problems have had a lot of money poured into them from the gene therapy end, and the situation has improved over the years. Overall, though, I would say that a DNA vaccine for SARS-CoV-2 would be a real come-from-behind story. Similarly, then, the mRNA vaccine idea has had a lot of work put into it in recent years. That's conceptually similar to the DNA vaccine idea, although you're only jumping in at the messenger RNA stage. Now, Derek says he's written a bit about this in a previous post on CureVac, which is a sort of general vaccine platform, which is one of the earliest ones that have been developed, so I urge you to go and seek that out if you're interested. Now, basically, it turns out that there was an unexpected side effect. There were experiments in giving messenger RNA to animals, and they've noticed that it triggered the immune system, and people have taken it from there as a new idea to make vaccines. As with the DNA vaccines, you can actually get two kinds of immune response. So your immune system can note that there's some random DNA floating around and think, oh, this is a sign of being infected. And then your adaptive immune system can generate antibodies to the resulting proteins that are coming out. One of the challenges has been getting a bit less of the innate response and a bit more of the adaptive one, which is what counts for the long-term immunity that you want from a vaccine. They mentioned the other day of a younger recovering COVID-19 patients who didn't seem to have that many developed antibodies is an example of that very problem. So you have a really robust response from your innate immune system, which can clear out the virus completely, but because you've essentially just cleared out anything that's foreign and not something specific, you've been left without much long-term immunity. So this is one of the risks with developing an mRNA vaccine. mRNA has a significant advantage over DNA, and perhaps over all of the virus and protein techniques that we've discussed, it's perhaps the most stripped-down vector that you can imagine, so you don't run into much immune response to the vector trouble, which can be a problem on repeat dosing with other vaccine technologies, and it can't possibly be inserted into the genome. But a big problem over the years has been getting the mRNA species to last long enough on dosing to be taken up into the cells efficiently, and to be well translated into the protein once that happened. So I should say that both this mRNA and DNA technique is essentially trying to get the body's own cells to manufacture some of these proteins that can then be recognised by the immune system and act as a vaccine. Derek says he won't even try to summarise all of the detail of this, but there have been extensive modifications made to the RNA sequences themselves and to the formulations they're dosed in, uh, a lot of this by pretty brutal trial and error work, and the technique might be ready for prime time now. He says we don't quite know that yet, though. The DNA vaccines have been around longer, but haven't produced a human therapy yet. 
So we don't really know whether this mRNA technique, which is very similar, is better, or we just haven't been disappointed by it yet in the same way as we have with these experimental DNA vaccines. And we're going to find out more quickly than we'd planned, given the attempts to develop this kind of thing for COVID-19. There's another key vaccination technique that we need to talk about, which is adjuvants. I apologise to anyone if I'm pronouncing that wrong. It doesn't sound right, but adjuvants or adjuvants. Um, it applies to all of the techniques above. And essentially what this is, is an extra thing you can add on to your vaccine that makes it more effective. So obviously the big thing that you want from a vaccination is a robust and long-lasting immune response, and it turns out that various additives can provoke that. These are all about the balances between the innate and adaptive immune response mentioned above. The idea is to get the best carryover from the immediate innate response that just clears everything out of your system to the antibody-centric adaptive ones where your body has long-term immunity and a long-term ability to produce uh, antibodies that can address a virus or bacteria. So the key here is the handoff to the antigen-presenting cells and the helper T-cells. Um, and Derek does say that there's a good point uh, here, which is that there's another post on his blog where you can get a primer on the different types of immune system that we're referring to here, and that's that's useful to read, I think. So this process of adding additives to vaccines started out, frankly, he says, as the closest thing to voodoo that you'll find in infectious disease treatment. Antibodies were generated by injecting horses and extracting their plasma, and a veterinarian, Gaston Rumon, noted in the 1920s that the yields were higher from animals that had developed a strong reaction at the original injection site. He started experimenting with additives to induce such reactions, including things like tapioca starch. In the same era, Alexander Glennie found formulating various diphtheria vaccines, if anything included aluminum salts, it was more effective. No one really knew any sort of detail about how these things did what they did, but aluminum salts are still very common in vaccines nearly a century later. We've begun to learn more now about what's going on. In the 1990s, the first new adjuvants in decades began to show up, and more have been added. For example, the GSK shingles vaccine has lipoproteins from salmonella bacteria added to it, along with terpene glycosides from the Chilean soapbark tree, which seems to be an especially powerful combination. I can tell you that the reaction at the site of injection for that one is very impressive, especially on the second shot. GSK's expertise in this field is the fact that when they're bringing to the collaboration with Sanofi, which is one of the things that is being done, GSK and Sanofi are collaborating to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. And they've collaborated with many others as well. So it may be that we can find an extra thing to add to this vaccine that will make it more effective. And then he has a little bit more to say about the efficacy of developing a COVID-19 vaccine. Back to the broad picture of developing a coronavirus vaccine, he says, the question is which of these possible techniques is the most effective and safe? That we're only going to find out in the end by dosing people, lots of people. With therapies targeting the immune system, there is in the end no other way to know because of the complexities of the human immune response and the wide variation of the immune system in the human population. Rushing the process will take a vast amount of effort and some of the steps are going to have to be done on a scale never before attempted. There's another point that can't be ignored. If we want this done as quickly as we would like, there will have to be some shortcuts. To that point, one of the reasons why the Moderna vaccine got off the mark so quickly is that the mRNA route can be intrinsically faster. But a bigger reason is that the step of seeing how well it works in animals was entirely skipped, which is very unusual. This is partly because it's still unclear which animal model will be the most informative. We have a bit of a head start thanks to the work that's been done on early human coronavirus pathogens for SARS and MERS, 
But SARS and the NCOV-19 virus do show real differences in various tests, and there's many lines of evidence for that that say they're not exactly analogous. And we can expect those differences to carry over when things are tested in animals as well. One approach that I know of is that people are taking to breed animals that have been engineered with the human form of the ACE2 protein, which is the crucial way in which the SARS-CoV-2 virus enters into cells. And in fact, it's the presence of ACE2 protein in the lungs and in some cases in the heart that is causing these infections to be so severe. One way or another, we should be able to find a small animal like a mouse or a hamster that can be useful, but we don't know whether it will be found in time to actually be useful. And Derek Lowe says his guess is that several other clinical vaccine candidates will end up skipping past the animal trial entirely, which is a shortcut and there will be others. Fortunately, testing for vaccine efficacy can be fairly straightforward and it involves many of the same issues that are being frantically beaten on for antibody testing, for the serology tests. Does a vaccinated patient develop antibodies? How many? Are they the right kinds to neutralise the virus? And how long do they last? The first three are the subject of a huge amount of work right now, and although it's nerve-wracking at the moment, he has no doubt that these are questions that can and will be resolved. We're going to have a lot to think about with what endpoints we'll be measuring for efficacy to be sure. Surrogate endpoints will be faster, but will regulatory agencies want to see more patient-focused clinical endpoints as well? So just to sort of summarise that, essentially, if you're measuring this person has such and such a level of antibodies in their system, that's one type of endpoint you can measure and say, yes, our vaccine is successful. Another type of endpoint would be a patient-focused clinical one. So you're saying patient does well, patient is immune. Um, so you can see that there are differences there in how well you have determined the efficacy of the vaccine. And there are different questions that you can answer. So Derek points to a review, a review uh, from the long gone days of 2016 of the standard development process for a new preventative vaccine. And there is generally a lengthy, detailed, overlapping, interlocking system of trials that such vaccines have undergone in the past. We're simply not going to be able to do all of that if we want a vaccine on these 12 to 18 month timelines. Ideally, these efficacy questions are phase two trials in different populations, age, gender, pre-existing health conditions, different medications being taken, all with different dosing schedules and carefully tune things up for the bigger phase three runs. We'll be able to deal with some of that by running a lot of simultaneous trials instead of doing things more sequentially, but that's not going to cover every issue, not by a long shot. Remember there are at least 78 of these things under development right now. There will be fierce attrition and only a few, maybe the low single digits, will make it to phase two and three trials. But it's still a fearsome process to get this all organised. And some things cannot be accelerated by any means known to humanity. How long immunity lasts is a big question for people both naturally infected by SARS-CoV-2 and for those given a vaccine. And unfortunately, there's no way to answer that one other than time and more testing, which is in short supply these days. The field provides many examples of vaccines whose protection has not held up as well as expected as the years went on. My guess is that we may well end up with a first round vaccine that doesn't last as long as it might, but will provide enough immunity to do the job and provide cover for us to collect more data on a better candidate. And I'll just finish by saying Derek summarises his overall thoughts on the vaccine development process thus. He says, it is a tightrope folks and we are going to be trying to run across it. Watch closely. With any luck we will never see anything quite like this again. Thank you for listening. www.physicspodcast.com. Contact form there. Any comments, questions, concerns, things you'd like to know, things you wouldn't like to know, send them there. Until next time then, take care.